Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joel Show podcast. Today on the pod, will BC's three-year decriminalization experiment actually work? The Vancouver Sun's Ian Mulgrew joins us. Plus, Glambot, we talked to a Richmond resident working the red carpet at this weekend's Grammy Awards. And our Friday panel looks at whether it's time to drop the royals from Canadian banknotes. And can the BC government's work-from-anywhere policy for public servants actually work? That's all next on the Jazz Joel Show podcast. Now, as we know, British Columbia on Tuesday began a, a three-year pilot program to stop prosecuting people for carrying small amounts of heroin, meth, ecstasy, crack, cocaine, two and a half grams or less, uh, in an effort to, to fight a drug overdose crisis. Now, BC accounts, get this, for about a third of the 32,000 deaths uh, due to overdose uh, in Canada. Uh, and that's uh, and that, of course, uh, has been since 2016. That's the same year this province um, declared a public health emergency. Of course, this is about destigmatization. We have been told in this week, we've had, look, Jennifer Whiteside on this program, the Minister of Mental Health and Addiction. We've had Fiona Wilson, the Deputy Police Chief from the Vancouver Police Department. Kevin Falcon, uh, leader of the BC Liberal Party, uh, introduces $1.5 billion plan. Our next guest is the entire policy of decriminalization is a waste of time. Ian Mulgrew is a columnist of the Vancouver Sun. I highly recommend you check out his column in Today's Sun. Uh, he lays out a very good case, uh, challenging some of the assertions made uh, by many uh, when it comes to this issue. And he joins us now. Ian, thank you uh, for speaking to us today. Oh, happy to join you, Jazz. All right. First of all, uh, in your mind, why is this a waste of time? Um, Because it doesn't do anything to address the real problem. It makes users feel a little safer, perhaps. But it doesn't address the adulterated drug supply or the issues of homelessness and the lack of treatment and support services for this group of people. So so why do you think, in your mind, because you've covered the courts for a long time, you've covered, uh, you know, police. You've been in and around this issue for literally decades. And you tell me, how did we end up down this road then? Um, well... Decriminalization sounds like you're doing something. And the politicians in this province are desperate to look like they're actually addressing the issue when they're not. Um, We had this discussion when the marijuana issue was in front of uh, people. And at that time, everyone said no to decriminalization for exactly the same reasons. It didn't do anything to address the gangs and the violence. It didn't do anything to protect our kids. And it really doesn't do anything at all. Uh, in regards to the, um, the issue of decriminalization, it, it, your opinion is that we should be heading in the other direction, which is more treatment centers, greater focus on education, greater focus on housing. Is, is that a fair assessment? Absolutely. I mean, we haven't put anyone in jail, and yet we've driven down the number of people smoking tobacco. Uh, I spoke to Fiona Wilson, as I said, uh, the other day, and she was telling us, I think it was three arrests they've made uh, in regards to uh, personal use of hard drugs uh, last year. And she says prior to that, um, to my recollection, it was about, on average about five arrests 
uh, a year. Uh, in your mind, uh, the police have already decriminalized through their actions. It's not like they're just doing it. This is after a broader conversation. We've actually been living under decriminalization, haven't we, over the much longer period beyond just what transpired on Tuesday? Well, what we've seen, Jack, is that the police charging people in encampments for passing each other less than a gram of, of uh, substances. So they have just moved to doing, un- the Victoria police were doing undercover operations against women who couldn't afford rent, who were living uh, in a tent, and one of them would get, go and buy some, uh, what they thought was uh, heroin. It was about 002 percent of a gram of heroin most of it was caffeine a bit of fentanyl and they charged them with trafficking we saw the same thing up in Kamloops and I would ask the police let's have a look at your trafficking charges because let's remember here Vancouver police took a million dollars a year out of the fentanyl tax for the evidence storage unit in the downtown east side do you like what they're doing in Alberta as a solution to this? Uh, no, I don't. Why? Well, I, I think that uh, what we need is both uh, some compassion as well as a huge investment in treatment and um, uh, support services. We haven't increased welfare in, in I don't know how long. $900 roughly with $375 for your shelter allowance. You can't feed yourself on $900 a month in this town, much less rent an apartment. We've got people living in squalor. All of this needs to be changed. And if we've got money to send six cabinet ministers to Ottawa for a, a gab fest, surely we can start to house people properly because no one's getting off drugs without a place to live and without some support. And we face a different problem than Alberta. That's really my, my concern. And I really think we've got to realize that the drug market is now a regulated pharmaceutical drug market. It's no longer sort of illicit drugs cooked up by people in foreign countries and smuggled into the country. It's Tylenol 3s. Fentanyl, you can buy fentanyl in the pharmacy and they prescribe it for pain. All of these drugs are partly on the street because our doctors have started cutting off people from narcotic pain pills. And if you have chronic pain or you're waiting for a knee operation, and let's face it, Jazz, wait lists in this province are now two years, three years long, mm-hmm. you need pain, pain relief. And for the doctors to be cutting these people off, and driving them to the street where they're getting, you know, drugs that are contaminated and they are risking their lives. On top of that, our kids, our teenage kids who, let's face it, lots of them are experimenting. They're now rolling the dice with their life. That was not always the case. We're also seeing people like, you know, our, our Jason Blotchford, our sports reporter, for instance, his wife was on television and doing the media rounds last week, yep. telling people about her husband, you know, dying. He was a recreational user, and um, he died. And uh, she talked about the shame and how it took her a year to get over that. It's time to really change our attitudes. 
these laws are racist. They were brought in the the anti-opioid law, the anti-heroin um, um, law. They were brought in to, to try and force Chinese people out of the country. When we passed our anti-marijuana law, it was the same. We wanted to keep out Mexicans and black people. There's no health reasons for these laws. And everybody who has ever looked at this issue agrees that criminalization is the wrong way to go. Even Dr. Bonnie Henry says that. We've often talked about other jurisdictions. Uh, Portland, Oregon uh, are two examples. Now, I had friends go down to Oregon uh, not too long ago uh, with their kids uh, for a basketball game, hoping to stay there a couple of nights, and they came back after one night just because of the, the, the homeless challenge that's there, the squalor that is there, and I've heard from others who have gone down as well. And Portland's not the only city. Seattle's dealing with it. L.A. is dealing with it all along the coast. All our major cities are. Do you like any of the systems where they have decriminalized drugs? I use Oregon and Portugal as an example. But one would argue even in Portugal, the, the programs they offer on top of the decriminalization are quite significant that we don't do that here in British Columbia. No, we don't. Um, but Por- Portugal is also a bad model because it's very coercive. And let's face it, Portugal is a small country and was one of the last European countries to abandon fascism. Portugal is a different culture. It's a different, it's a homogenous country by and large. And um, it works there for them. It certainly isn't going to work in a, a province as diverse and, and um, as, as committed to civil liberties as British Columbia. As for the American cities of Portland, Seattle, and, and, and uh, San Francisco or Los Angeles, they're very different from the Canadian experience. Um, but quite frankly, they've been destroyed by progressives who haven't wanted to grapple with these issues and hold people accountable. So people do have to be held accountable. So I mean, so explain to me what a perfect system in your world looks like. You've talked about that this decriminalization doesn't work. Where do the police? Where, when it comes to the, when it comes to the four pillars, where do the police in your mind fit in in all of this? Where does the treatment fall in in all of this? And where does the compassion fall in within your plan? What would you see done if you could wave a wand? Um, I would immediately. Um, eliminate the criminal laws um, on uh, these drugs, and I would uh, regulate them all. They're really regulated anyway right now. And I would have the doctors being told that their job is to help people, not send them to the street where they are prey for gangsters. I think the police should be focusing on closing down the gangs and not chasing after people who are in a health crisis. I would then uh, um, point out that, you know, the police talk a good game about harm reduction, but they have been against it from the moment Mayor Philip Owen embraced it. And I can only think of uh, Sam Sullivan uh, as the only other mayor that kind of carried the, 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 pillar, the four pillars forward. Um, I don't recall any other mayor doing it. And the police have opposed it all along. You just have to look at the Yard Squad Productions and, and their scared straight approach to um, this issue. The, the police have not been in favor of treating this as a health issue until very recently. And I think it's just a public relations gesture. 
Ian, thank you for your time today, my friend. It's always good to talk to you, Jeff. Let's talk uh, flying for a moment. I know it can be incredibly difficult, very frustrating. You saw a lot of that uh, over the Christmas period here in British Columbia and across Canada as well. Now, of course, there are processes put in place where you can complain, usually to the Canadian Transportation Agency when you have specific complaints uh, about an airline. Well, we've had hearings, uh, a couple of hearings over the last three months in this country. And what we've learned in those hearings is uh, uh, Parliament was told twice in the past three months that it, uh, that um, the Canadian Transportation Agency, uh, that it relies on informal means to resolve 97% of the complaints it handles, meaning it does not keep any records of those complaints. Usually it uh, facilitates a conversation between somebody who complains about how they were treated by an airline and the airline itself, but there's no indication how many of those complaints are actually resolved, uh, no record keeping whatsoever. Joining me now to talk a little bit about accountability from airlines is Dr. Gabor Lukacs, President and Founder of the Air Passenger Rights Group. Dr. Lukacs, thank you for joining us today. Good afternoon. Uh, your thoughts, first and foremost, in regards to accountability from airlines when it comes to uh, passengers and passenger rights, this idea that that the Canadian Transportation Regular does not keep track of the outcomes of the vast majority of air passenger complaints. Uh, I, I just found, I was quite shocked when I, when I heard about that. Uh, this is something that we have been aware of for a number of years and we have been flagging it for politicians and the media, but it has reached now the level of, of cons- public concern that it got reported. Uh, the concern that we had that is not simply with airline accountability, but with government accountability. The Canadian Transportation Agency has been misreporting, misstating to Parliament that it actually resolves 97% of the complaint it receives in facilitation. And what we learned already uh, about two years ago is that the agency just reports everything that goes through the facilitation process as resolved unless it goes further to adjudication. So whether the passenger gives up or the airline just refuses to pay or maybe the passenger does get something, it all gets marked down as resolves. And that is a way of misleading the public and parliament about what the agency is actually doing. Why is accountability uh, so poor for this industry? That is a very good question. Uh, uh, the, the problem with accountability starts at the regulator. And the regulator, the Transportation Agency, is supposed to be independent, but it is not. Uh, we have seen documents that Transport Canada officials are meddling with the Canadian Transportation Agency's affairs, and the Canadian Transportation Agency is just going along and acting in the airline's private interest as opposed to the public interest. Uh, the question is really why does the government feel or felt in the past, and continues to feel, I'm afraid, currently, mm-hmm. it has to help the airlines as opposed to protecting the public. Uh, it, do you think part of this is the fact that uh, we're still uh, you know, a country of uh, 38, 39 million people uh, spread over five time zones? We still need uh, to build our, our airline industry. Uh, there, there is always concern, of course, uh, if there's enough competition, that partially that the government doesn't come down harder simply because uh, the industry here still uh, is reliant on a small uh, base when it comes to um, being economically viable? I beg to differ. 
in how you treat the airline, of course, one can have various considerations. But once the laws have been written and laid down, the laws have to be enforced. In a, any democratic state where which has any respect for the rule of law, it is not acceptable not to follow the law or not to enforce the law. If the laws are too stringent, then the government, parliament, may need to change the laws, and that's a fair game. That's that's part of the uh, rules of the democratic uh, structure. Uh, when you hear stories about a poor uh, response to customer complaints, you also hear about American airlines as well. Are there any airlines that you think or any government that um, handles or has processes that actually handle complaints legitimately, essentially treating uh, customers with respect? Are there any nations that have stringent rules where you, you, where you see very little of this? In the U.S., there are complaints, of course, but there are also hefty fines issued to airlines that break the law. And that creates some level of balance and some deterrence to airlines to break the law. And we are hearing now that the U.S. is actually further strengthening passenger protection, even though they already have at least a stringent enforcement. Uh, and we need to be clear on the two sides of it, enforcement versus the rules. In the U.S., they at least so far had slightly less rules than we have in Canada, but they have been very consistent compared to us in enforcing those. Mm -hmm. The European Union has the gold standard in terms of rules, and the enforcement in the European Union happens in two separate avenues. One is uh, through national enforcement bodies, uh, which varies from nation to nation, and their efficiency varies from between the UK or Germany or, or Belgium to places like Spain and, and uh, Portugal or Hungary, where the enforcement is very different. Uh, but also there are those private claim enforcement companies that since the rules themselves are very simple, they lend themselves to reasonable automatization and enforcement. So for a cut of your compensation, they will go if necessary to court and they have technology that they can very well predict which cases are, are, are legitimate and they collect the money for passengers. Do you think we're heading in the right direction? I mean, what's happened over Christmas time, uh, I, I know the, the, this has happened over the last couple, three months or so, it's this, this information's come out as well at these hearings. Are we headed in the right direction for greater accountability, or at least better accountability than we have right now? Uh, we certainly have had a public outcry, and uh, decision makers are, and politicians are well aware of that. Uh, there, there is some momentum now among politicians and on the transport committee of the House of Commons to look for solutions. Even the minister has acknowledged that some changes are necessary. Uh, I fear that what the minister may be proposing may not go far enough, but I'm cautiously optimistic that at least now there is a developing consensus that the status quo is untenable. Dr. Lukic, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much for having me. Let's talk about uh, housing uh, here in Vancouver, across the country as well. Uh, this afternoon, a new story came upon uh, my desk saying that uh, Stats Canada data uh, is showing that investors made up almost one-third of homeowners in some provinces in 2020. So this is new data that has come out from uh, Stats Canada. Now, the highest proportion in regards to investors uh, who own homes was in Nova Scotia, 31 
uh, 0.5%, so just over 31%. Investors in BC came in at 23%, 20% in Ontario. And what was interesting was that houses used as an investment were mainly owned by individuals living in the same province as the property. So I took that as local buyers. But it's quite interesting in regards to uh, the involvement of investors in home ownership across this country. I'm still going through the, the, the study even as we speak. I was going through it during the news break as well. In the city of Vancouver, uh, it said the number was actually even higher than that, 32.5%. Um, uh, in regards to condominium apartments used as an investment, so a third or so. So each area is going to be a little different, but nearly one out of four uh, properties uh, in British Columbia are are owned by investors. And as I've said, it appears certainly by the initial stories that have come out this afternoon that these are local investors. Joining me now to talk a little bit about um, this Stats Canada data is Michael Geller, real estate consultant and president of the Geller Group. Good afternoon, Michael. Jazz, good afternoon. Uh, you know, we've had such a uh, high-profile, polarized conversation in and around housing, and always do, I guess, but certainly in the last five years or so, it's, it's, uh, it's been quite significant. Even before the NDP government, under uh, Christy Clark's uh, leadership, that we brought in the oversight, overseas buyer's tax, all of those types of things. So we'll get to that. First of all, you're just your thoughts on the numbers that, that you see. What, what does it tell you? I'm surprised that the percentage of condominiums purchased by investors appears so low. <laughs> and, I, and I say that because it was generally thought within the development community that at least 40% of the condominiums that are being built around Metro Vancouver, primarily in those high-rises, but mm-hmm. also in six-story, are being purchased by investors. And the reason they're being purchased by investors is because the banks require the developers to pre-sell. In other words, before construction starts, they're required to sell at least 50% of the units in their development. And the marketing people will tell them it's much easier to sell a studio or a one-bedroom to an investor on a Saturday morning than to sell a three-bedroom apartment to someone moving out of a house. So these projects, up until recently, have generally been maximizing the number of studios and one-bedrooms so that investors would buy these units. Hmm. And that's why the percentage is so high. Yeah, and, and as uh, I've been going through it this afternoon, it looks like when you take the entire Metro Vancouver area, it looks like the investment numbers go up to 42%, as you were saying. And when you look at the city of Vancouver specifically, it's 32%, and just under about 23 24% for the entire province. So still significantly significant. So what do we need to do moving forward in regards to policy? Does this tell us anything in regards to uh, what things do we need to change? What things do we need to look at? Um, because if, if, if the banks force upon... Uh, these companies to sell a certain amount pre-sale, it forces certain actions, processes and laws, force developers to do certain things, go down a certain route. What needs to change in your mind? Well, what we really need to do, and I'm not going to pretend that I expect this to happen, but when I first started in the development business, a developer would design a project, they would take it to the bank, the bank might ask CMHC what they thought of it, And then they would make a decision to finance the building before it was built. 
Then when it was built, the developer, as he near completion or she nears completion, would then begin to sell the homes. And so you were basically selling a completed product to somebody. That all changed really in the 80s when this whole notion of pre-selling became popular because the banks were effectively becoming lazy. And rather than do uh, the underwriting and make a decision as to whether this is a viable project, they said, prove it to us. And uh, that has significantly added also to the cost because anybody who's been in the housing field lately who's looked at projects, they've probably gone to the sometimes magnificent presentation sales centers that have to be built, and all of that adds to the cost of housing as well. So I would like the bank to relax their requirement and do some proper underwriting, but I know that I'm being... That, that that's not likely going to happen. What can the province or the city do at that level, on the policy level? Is there anything we can change? it? Um, because, you know, at the end of the day, these investors have extra cash. They do, it does, they do facilitate these facilities, these homes being built, these condominiums to be built. But there's many who say, look, it does squeeze out first-time buyers, greater competition. What do we need to do to, 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 to allow that first-time home buyer to have a better chance to, to get in the market? Well, one thing, is, and it is happening now, is that the municipalities are often saying, we want to see more two-bedroom and three-bedroom apartments in these developments. And uh, that begins to create a product that is appealing more to, to the, what we call end users. That's the real estate term for somebody who's actually going to live in the home. But the other point that I think I have to make is it's not necessarily such a terrible thing that we do have investors buying these homes because they become very much a part of the rental housing stock. Now, I admit that when somebody rents a condominium from an investor, they don't have the same security of tenure that they have when they move into a rental building. But there's a lot of people living listening to us right now who are living in a condominium that's owned by somebody, but they've been they've been renting it for five years or, or longer, and they're quite happy there. So we shouldn't ignore the fact that all of these investors, while they may be seen to be competing with uh, first-time buyers or second-time buyers, they are doing something positive, like you know, creating rental stock. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, given the interest rate uh, increases. I think the appetite for a lot of investors right now is, is, is much less than it was uh, three years ago. So that's, so to some degree, the market is already beginning to balance things out a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, the broader conversation, I mean, you go back to 2016, 2015, and moving forward, we've had a significant conversation about investors, particularly foreign investors. When you look at uh, to a certain degree, the the impact this has had on the Chinese community, who many would argue have been made a scapegoat for the rising prices in, in homes here in the Lower Mainland. Now that when you look at the numbers, the numbers that I've been reciting, they're predominantly local investors. There are fellow Canadians that are doing so. That, do you think that's, and, and I'm not sure how to phrase this question, but it does speak to the tremendous amount of racism that that particular community has had to deal with in regards to foreigners are coming up here and buying everything 
And when re- in reality, yes, we do have investors, and there's some positive to what they're doing, but this, these are our fellow Canadians and British Columbians that have been buying up these properties. Yeah. Well, there's no doubt. I mean, it, there was a time, and I mean, and the, but we're talking about maybe 15 years ago when, you know, people were coming from mainland China and buying homes here mm-hmm. and uh, buying pro and, and it was a reality in the marketplace, and it did happen. But over time, many of the people have moved into these homes or they've lived in them part-time and so forth. So to that extent, um, there has been a contribution. But the other side of the coin is I, I sit and listen to people or I see comments on Twitter. And if you believe what people say on Twitter and in social media, you think that our housing market has been completely distorted because of money, money launderers and Chinese people. And it's preposterous. It really is. And even when we see the statistics, people still refuse to believe it. The reality is the problem we have, and you and I have talked about it quite a bit, Jazz, is there's an imbalance between the supply and demand. I'm speaking to you from Tofino, where I'm attending a housing conference being organized by the planners. And the last session I attended was how municipalities can speed up the approval process to help address housing affordability. The planners recognize that's the problem. It's a shame the broader audience doesn't always appreciate that. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And, and uh, you know, the numbers that came out today, I, I just reaffirms uh, what I think people like you have said many times and others have suspected as well, that we have plenty of investors here, here, here locally as well. Do you think beyond what the banks have been requiring from developers, there's ways to... Um, maybe uh, not fair is the right word, but the pre-sale process itself. Sometimes there are people who get a leg up by a day or two, maybe something 5% uh, cheaper compared to the general public. Is there ways to clean up the pre-sale process as well? Well, what we are starting, I mean, first of all, there are changes that are being made. Uh, I mean, part of the, the investors were buying because for quite a while, a lot of people thought if you buy a pre-sale unit, and then you flip it before you have to close on it. In other words, you flip that, assign that interest. That's an easy way to make money. And for a while, it was an easy way to make money. Unfortunately, well, or fortunately, depending on your point of view, there's a lot of investors right now who bought units at a certain price, assuming interest rates were going to be 25 or 3%. Their units are going to be worth less when they're finished than what they paid for them, and the interest rates are going to be at least double or triple. And I say that because investors have to pay a higher interest rate than somebody who's buying their own home. So that is happening. But we're also seeing municipalities starting to encourage programs like local first programs, rent, a very limited rent-to-own, even workforce housing, in other words, housing for people specifically living in a municipality. And so there, there are certain things happening as well, which I think is, is going to counterbalance the sort of uh, all the investors buying up the product. That's just not happening right now. Michael, thanks for your time today. Always a pleasure. 
The 65th Grammy Awards are on February 5th. Lots of artists and celebrities will be there. Beyonce, Kendrick Lamar, Adele, Lizzo, Harry Styles, and on and on. They'll be walking the red carpet. They'll probably run into our next guest. I get, I guarantee you they will. Cole Walliser will be behind the camera operating the Glambot. This isn't the first time the Richmond resident has operated the high-tech camera. He's attended other red carpet events as well. Take a listen to him explaining the Glambot on the red carpet to singer Eric. Ariana Grande. Hi, my dear. Can you move it in any way or is it? Yes, beautiful. So I'll say three, two, one, action is going to come whipping up super quickly. You want to give me a big toss on action and smile on the camera and it's perfect. And it's going to come quite quickly at your face, so don't let it scare you. Okay, all right. Great. And three, two, one, action. That was so scary. It was amazing. It was perfect. Cool, it was it was beautiful. That's fun. I've never done one. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so what glad. What's your you name? I'm Cole. Ariana, nice pleasure. to meet such you. Such a nice, such a pleasure to meet you. Ariana, can I steal a selfie while you're here? Sure, come on in. <laughs> he's a salesman too, and he's such a nice guy. Well, joining us now is Cole Walliser, who is a director and content uh, creator. He joins us from Los Angeles. Cole, thank you for speaking to us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. That You did a great job explaining uh, the Glambot to Ariana Grande. I've, I've watched some of the videos and, and, and your TikTok videos there. You do a great job making these celebrities feel comfortable, and you get so much out of them. I was very impressed watching uh, the videos today. For our audience, can you explain what the Glambot is and how it works? Yeah, I mean, it's essentially the same pitch I give uh, celebrities when they come up. It's a high-speed, slow-motion camera. So what that means is the camera moves quite quickly and then shoots the talent in slow motion. And you get this really cool, heightened, stylized effect that is really kind of surreal and extra glamorous. That's why it's called the Glambot. Um, and yeah, that's, that's kind of how the system works. How did you get involved with uh, filming and directing uh, for these red carpet events? Well, it, it uh, was a sort of a progression in my career. Um, so after, after graduating from UBC, I decided to move down to L.A. to pursue my career in directing. And I had a background in dance. I had a background in music. And uh, I sort of led me down doing a lot of like music videos and things. And then that led me doing beauty stuff. I did a lot of dance stuff. And when this Glambot thing came about, they needed someone that understood beauty, had worked with like A-list talent, and had a, a solid grasp on like choreography and movement and I kind of checked all those boxes so I had worked with a producer years before and he asked me to come in to meet to do some tests and to figure it out and then uh, the rest is the history I suppose you did dance and choreography here in Vancouver as well didn't you I did yes uh, and was that at a, at a, at a specific company or, or was something you set mm -hmm. up yourself yeah no I taught uh, breakdancing class at Harbor Dance Center downtown I also taught at UBC Dance Horizons when I was in school there. Uh, so yeah, so I, I, and, and Richmond Dance Academy. So I, I've taught dance in and around Vancouver uh, before, yeah. Mm -hmm. So when you uh, film uh, these celebrities uh, on the Glambot, where does the final product end up? Uh, it ends up in the red carpet show for E. So E does a red carpet pre-show to all the award shows. And so the glam bots themselves end up kind of as bumpers in between commercials, but then also as they're doing interviews, you know, as Ariana Grande is doing an interview with whoever they have, like this year, I believe it's Liver and Cox on the red carpet. Sometimes they'll cut to the glam bot and play that over the interview. It'll be as bumpers in and out of commercials. And then, of course, they end up all over social media. And so in regards to you, you grew up in Richmond and Steveston specifically. Uh, give me a sense of what, what, what life was like when you're growing up in Richmond and, and your interest in uh, choreography in regards and filming as well. 
Yeah, I mean, some of my earliest memories are sort of like dancing around the house uh, to music, like making up little dance routines with my sister and then also having a camera in my hand. So my dad had like a, I mean, it must have been a VHS camera like back in the day. (laughs) Um, And we would play around with it. And I remember like sort of directing her and like shooting little fun videos. And I guess that kind of like piqued my interest and it always kind of stayed with me. I ended up skateboarding a ton in Vancouver. I actually was one of the people that designed the Richmond Skate Park uh, back in the day as well that I think has since closed. But uh, a camera in my hand for skateboarding. And then when I was in school, I bought a good camera and I wanted to learn more. So it's always kind of been in and around. And at some point I was just like, maybe I can do this as a career. I, I clearly like doing it. Maybe there's, a, there's an opportunity for me. Wow. And what school did you go to? What high school? Uh, McRoberts. I went to McRoberts. Oh, you did? Okay. And do you get back to Richmond very often now? I mean, you have a very busy oh, life yeah. in L.A.? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, as much as I can. You know, my family's still all up there, and I have a new nephew, so he's really tons of fun to go up and visit and hang out with. So it's been it, – I try to get up there at least a couple times a year for you sure. You do? Okay. Now, I was watching the footage on YouTube, and, and you know, you had Ariana Grande that we heard a little bit of, uh, about from, from that uh, shoot. You, you've met Brad, Brad Pitt. What's it like just being on that red carpet? Because there's just so Celebrity after celebrity showing up, you've got to be professional, you've got to be quick. What is the whole environment like when you're, when you're on a red carpet like that? I think that, like, it's so much more hectic than people tend to understand. Like, it is back-to-back, but you have to understand, too, it's like I'm only one outlet of, like, 50. It's like there's a ton of people doing interviews, there's a ton of people taking photos, people are yelling, there's publicists everywhere running around. Like, it's such a frenetic, crazy environment, and I didn't really, like, get that until I was there because usually you'll see like an interview clip or even when the celebrity comes up to me it's like it's quick but like we're very like present and like somewhat calm and composed but then as soon as they leave it's like people are yelling and screaming and it's like it's just quite a crazy environment which is exciting and fun but also just like it's a lot you know uh you've been around enough celebrities, lots of celebrities now. It's not just Grammys. You've worked other award shows as well. Uh, the first time you did it, uh, were you nervous? Oh, uh, definitely. A hundred percent. Yeah. My first one was the Emmys. Um, and it was right when Stranger Things came out. And I remember them walking, the kids walking the carpet. And we ended up shooting them. And it was like the first one that like went really viral because that was kind of like the hit show at the time. And they were super fun and expressive. And that was like such a kind of a pivotal moment where I was like, oh, like this thing, this thing could do something, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but, but to answer your question, I mean, I was nervous there and I was nervous for years. I think only recently, now I'm like, it's another day at work and I'm going to see friends that I've seen before, you know, on Sunday. So it's like, it, it becomes more of like a really fun thing. And the nerves have definitely calmed down uh, over the past couple of years. And I guess the celebrities probably recognize you as well. Yeah, so at this point, like, you know, I've shot a bunch of celebrities, like, over the years, so it's always fun and exciting to see them, but also because of the -the behind-the-scenes social media content, like, that goes viral, you know, fairly often, so now they recognize me. Like, a couple times people have been coming up, like, oh, my God, I've seen you on on TikTok, and to me, that's mind-boggling, because I've, like, watched their shows, you know what I mean? So it's Mm -hmm. quite an interesting kind of turning of the tables with, with all the content that comes out. Who's your favorite celebrity to work with? Uh, like, like, who's my favorite that I've shot on the red carpet? Yeah, on the red carpet. Oh, I mean, honestly, like, the Ariana one is one of the tops, I'd say, you know, for sure. Um, also, like, Billie Eilish, I shot her a couple times. She's super sweet and super fun. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, the list, the list goes on. You know, I end up shooting, like, over 100, 150, sometimes close to 200 shots per award show. Like, we're open for hours, so we, we run through a lot of celebrities and 
in a single event, you know, and I do five or six a year. If uh, what celebrity have you not uh, shot yet that you would like to? Which one would be your number one celebrity that you would like oh. to meet? Well, you named her in the intro, and it's definitely Beyonce. I have not <laughs> shot Beyonce yet, and obviously that would be the best Glambot ever, ever made. <laughs> well, she knows how to strike a pose, that's for sure. She is, she is an absolute pro. It's quite fun, actually, watching all of them. And, and you, when you give them direction, I mean, they're listening to you, and you can tell you know what you're talking about, and you do make them very comfortable. And I'm just amazed that these celebrities are used to, you know, obviously being in front of the camera, but they still need direction. And, and you seem to be very calm, and you actually calm them down as well. Well, thank you. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I mean, that's a large part of my job. I mean, I, I've come to realize that, you know, the more sort of natural and organic that they feel and the movement that they kind of sort of naturally comes out of their body is going to be the better. So I could come up there and prescribe some movement, but it might be quite foreign to them. So, you know, my job is to quickly make them feel comfortable, but then also figure out what kind of movement they, they're going to, they're going to, again, be, feel comfortable doing. So, and again, I, I get like 200 chances a time at a workshop, so I have <laughs> refined my skill at this, um, but, but I do appreciate you noticing for sure. Well, Cole, you do great work, and we look forward to seeing that uh, this weekend as well. Thank you so much for your time today. Of course. Thank you for having me. Well, folks, we've got another week of opinions, experts, open line, wisdom, and hot takes. It's that time to bring together our dynamic duo to help uh, explain the week that was. It's time for The Wrap. Goodbye now. It's over. That's all. Thank you. All right. That's a wrap. It's Friday, and this is The Wrap on the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Thank God it's this week, we ask, are investors to blame for a housing crisis? And can the B.C. government's work-from-anywhere policy for public servants actually work? Joining us today is our regular rap panel. Leah Halib is a TV reporter and radio host. And Sarah Daniels is a real estate agent in South Surrey. She's an author and broadcaster as well. Leah, Sarah, welcome. Hi, guys. Hello. Hello. Well, I was going to start, uh, we were going to do a, a, um, a, a panel today, a conversation on Australia and the, and the fact that Australians uh, didn't, are going to take the Queen and, of course, the, the uh, King Charles face off the bank note, the five o'clock, uh, the five dollar bank note, sorry. <laughs> and, uh, and I thought, you know what, we've bashed the ro- uh, royals enough. I think we should probably focus on <laughs> news for the day. So let's talk about uh, investors um, based on a new Stats Canada uh, data that came today that basically says that uh, in here in BC, 23% of homes uh, that ha- that are purchased are owned by investors. It's not as high as Nova Scotia, which is 31%. But we spent so much time blaming um, foreign investors. Turns out the, the investors we're talking about are actually local investors. They live right here in British Columbia. Sarah, let me start with you because you're in the real estate yeah. industry. Your thoughts on this. Is, is this something we should be concerned about? We're in the midst of a housing crisis. And uh, people say, look, should first-time buyers be competing with these investors who clearly have excess dollars? Uh, is this something of concern for us? What, what are your thoughts? Well, here's the thing is investors are just that. They are investing. So they're not emotionally attached to the property. Mm-hmm. They're looking at it from a dollar and cents perspective, right? And I know that because I'm a realtor, everybody's I'm going to get mail saying like, you're just a realtor cashing in. on You know, that's not the way it works. I wish it was because then I'd be <laughs> rolling around in my Rolls Royce and doing all that kind of stuff. But honestly, I work with I do work with investor buyers, and it really comes down to dollars and cents. And even when it was in the market where we had multiple offers, investors for the most part backed off of those kind of situations because 
for them, A plus B equals C, right? So it's mm-hmm. going to be the cost of the investment and the upkeep offset by the rent. And of course, there's also things to take into account like maintenance fees if it's a condo or just maintenance in general if it's a house, taxes, etc. So the numbers have got to work. Um, whereas a person purchasing for their own personal enjoyment may, you know, there's other factors that, that fall into that. So investors fall into a totally different group. I mean, investors that know what they're doing. I mean, there's definitely investors out there that just think like, oh, I can, I'll just buy whatever and I'll, I'll be able to rent it out for top dollar. And they're, they're just not, you know, maybe up to speed as to how, how difficult being an investor is, because it's as much as people think that it's an easy job to be an investor and just, you know, be a landlord. There's a lot involved with it. You can end up with bad tenants. You can end up with like a bad strata council or something like that in a building that you own a condo in. There's a lot of variables. So I think it would be really short-sighted to say that investors are the problem with uh, with, the, with the rising prices in BC. Leah, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, some have said, look, uh, are they responsible for our housing crisis? That somebody who is looking at that first-time buyer could be uh, wanting a place, but they get outbid by some of these investors, even though uh, Sarah here is saying they'll back out. Uh, but the fact that it does create this competition, do you think we need to put in new rules or extra rules? Uh, you, you know, you look at these pre-sale condos, in many cases, if, if you know somebody, you can come in a few days earlier, get a 5% discount and put the money down, which makes it harder for everyday folks as well. What are your thoughts? Do you think there needs to be some sort of rule, some sort of rule that basically makes it a little tougher to be an investor, at the very least not perhaps give investors dibs on the on the new places right away? Yeah, there shouldn't be dibs and you shouldn't be able to know somebody to get in early. I don't agree with that at all. Everybody should start from the ground level and everybody should have a crack at any type of property. I think, you know, for investors, I think the one good thing about investors is they're going to put it on the rental market, right? So at least that'll help the rental market, right? So if they're just investing, they're not going to live there, just they're going to rent it out. So I think, you know, you can't really blame them on everything. I think they're going to help with the rental market. I do understand if you're a first time buyer, like I own my place and, you know, um, I bought like six years ago, so it was definitely cooler at that time. But I think, you know, I didn't have a lot of competition with what I was looking at and, you know, it worked for me. But now the way the market is, definitely if I was to buy, again, especially a first time, you should be able to have, you know, it a little easier, I think, if you're a first time buyer because you're new to the market. You don't really understand how everything works. I think maybe you should have either first dibs or everything should be totally even keel. I don't agree with people being able to get first crack at certain properties. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what is hurting a lot of first time buyers right now is that the uh, insured mortgages are capped at a million dollars. And in British Columbia, that Mm. is a really low rate. That is low in British Columbia. The rest of the country, maybe not so much, but also uh, the property transfer tax, you you get a, you get a pass on it under 500,000 for a first time buyer. You show yeah. me a first-time buyer that can find something in the Lower Mainland for under 500000 <laughs> yeah. And there's <laughs> very not. little there. So, you know, if the provincial government and the federal governments really want to be, you know, a little bit uh, more helpful, first of all, they'll look at zoning regulations. Second of all, they might actually start promoting buildings that are sold only to first-time buyers to get them a leg in. Yeah. And then also, let's take a look at the, uh, the, the insured mortgage uh, issues as well as property transfer tax. I mean... Property transfer tax on a million dollars is $18,000, and that cannot be financed. So you've got to have that on top of your deposit. There's a lot of other things that are stopping first-time buyers from getting in. What about, like, the rent-to-own properties, you know, where you put rent in, it actually goes to your mortgage? Like, I think that's a great idea. Very very few of those exist because the thing is, for developers, right, there's not really an incentive for them. No, they want their money right away. If if the government wants to be and, and, you know, wants to tout themselves as being 
proactive for the little guy and the first time buyers. You know, stand behind it. Put your money where your mouth is. Yeah. Get off your asses and start doing something about it. The and actually, instead of making legislation, call the realtors before you do it. The that one, the one thing I do like about these numbers is we should stop bl- blaming foreigners and especially yeah. the yeah, Chinese for sure. community for saying you Definitely. can't afford homes. There's myriad reasons. We but have dog whistled foreign buyers um, and <laughs> like literally basically anybody of quote unquote color that um, is coming from another country that is easily identifiable. I mean, nobody yeah. was, you know, complaining about Americans that work in Canada uh, buying properties, but all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, it's got to be the Chinese. People need to take a good hard look at themselves for why they were thinking that way and behaving that yeah, way. Yeah, and uh, I think that's just crap. That it was the last four or five years in the debate in this uh, city got really, really ugly. And it's a reminder really once ugly, again, yeah. and you're absolutely right. So I hope it provokes some more conversation next week as well. The numbers actually came out late uh, this afternoon. So I appreciate you ladies uh, changing course <laughs> rather than talking about King Charles. Well, Can coming you talk up. About Charles? <laughs> I know. I got some <laughs> nasty email uh, overnight too. But good picking <laughs> on them. I'm like, I'm not. It, that's what they're doing. It's the news. Anyway. Coming up next, can the B.C. government's work-from-anywhere policy for public servants actually work? That's next. Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us, we're speaking to our Friday rap panel. Leah Halive is a TV reporter and radio host, and Sarah Daniels is a real estate agent in Seltzer. She's an author and broadcaster as well. Well, this week, BC Civil Service was abuzz after Premier David Aby and his staff uh, announced some rule changes in regards to remote work. What they basically said, the province will make all jobs after April 1st, available to anyone in BC whose community contains a ministry office. So uh, rather than forcing people to relocate to, let's say, uh, the government nerve centres of Victoria or Vancouver, you could work in your respective community. So essentially, if there is a job posting in Victoria and you happen to have, let's say, a government office in Prince George, and you apply for the job, you get the job, you don't have to move to Victoria. You can live and work out of Prince George. That's just an example, but that's what they're saying. Uh, Let me go to you first, Sarah. Look, I'm old-fashioned, and I think people should get back to work. I know there's uh, (laughs) times where there is, you can do remote work, and it helps with uh, uh, daycare, it helps with, uh, for families, it just, it is, it is better. But I think society moving away, or we're just working from home or hybrid locations, I think you give up productivity and to a certain degree, transparency and accountability when you do this. What are your thoughts? Not to mention, I, I just, I'm just i frightened to think of what people will start to look like, like when they have no excuse to leave the house whatsoever. I mean, this this is going to be a disaster for the beauty and clothing industries right there. <laughs> so I think that, you know, Not and for, for hairdressers and everything, because people are going to start look, to look like trolls. But that's just me being tongue-in-cheek. Honestly, I mean, it... If I could work from, I, I have to, I can work from home because I'm a realtor, but I obviously I have to be out and about. I don't know. I, I think that there, I mean, I think it's got to, I can see a hybrid situation where you're two or three mm-hmm. days at home, two or three days, depending on, you know, that third day in the office. But I think it's actually important to actually be in the office. I, I've said here before, you know, working from home during the pandemic and not seeing my, uh, my fellow realtors in the office. I missed the interaction because you, you learn a lot from other people. You can discuss issues, et cetera. And I think there's some real benefit to being in the office. It also, you know, from a motivational standpoint, I mean, you know, let's face it. When people are left to their own devices, a lot of the time, 
they slack off. Mm -hmm. So, you know, being able to actually try to, you know, and with everybody being like all over the place. So if you got an employee in Prince George and one in Prince Rupert, et cetera, it's like herding kittens. How do you keep track of everything? Yeah, exactly. Right. Leah, what, Leah, what do you think? I mean, there is a software now where you can track your employees even when they're working mm-hmm. from That's home. That's creepy. It is creepy. And I, I, but, I, you know, the, the federal government in Ottawa is trying to get people to work. They've made the rules. You've got to start yeah, exactly. coming back. And it is a bit of a hybrid, but you've got to come back to work. Here in Victoria, it looks like we're going the other way. I think, you know what, I am probably different than you guys because I think it'll draw more candidates. It sounds like they're having a hard time retaining and recruiting talent. I mean, not everyone, think about this, not everyone wants to move to Vancouver, Victoria. I mean, government wages, it's not like they're making a million bucks and we know what rent and to buy a place in Vancouver is. So do they want to spend all their money on rent? you know, or their mortgage. So like if you can work out of an office somewhere else, you know, and still connect, there's Teams, there's Zoom, there's a lot of way to connect. I mean, I think that's the way of the future now, unfortunately for you guys. I think it's a new hybrid way that, you know, the pandemic showed us that can actually work. I believe that this is a good move. I think that, you know, in a sense, you're going to get rid of a lot of, you know, quality candidates because they don't want to move to Vancouver or Victoria or to, you know, the capital I I will say, though, we're we're going to see, and it, we, they've, it's been on the news lately. I mean, downtown Victoria, downtown Vancouver, and it certainly is a, is a great example. Downtown cores have lost like a lot of workers that come in, and that those are the people sure. that are, you know, enjoying the restaurants at the lunch hour, doing yeah. their shopping, etc. And so we're seeing a real disintegration in in the town centers and city centers. The suburbs seem to be doing fine because you know people have gravitated out there. It's it's less expensive to live but the downtown cores themselves are suffering. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's a bad idea that people have to come in to, to work for a couple of days a week. I mean, obviously the provincial government's got going to have satellite offices all over the place. And if you're, yeah. you know, in Prince Rupert, you might be able to work in the Prince Rupert office. But the simple fact of the matter is if you're, if they want you in Victoria, they're going to, they're going to pay the wages and you're, you know, you're a union wage. It's not like you can really get fired. You have to do something pretty insane to get fired and you get a pension. <laughs> so, I mean, go yeah. team. I don't get a pension. Nobody gives a rat's patoot about whether I live or die. Exactly. So, I know. mean, the private sectors, <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they are flexible, but not like that. And I think no, this yeah. is just way too flexible. We're, and paying, boss. we're paying for these workers. I <laughs> yeah, exactly. Gross about it, but we're paying for them. And you're getting a big pension. I've got a friend that worked for the CBC. She retired in her mid-50s, and she's getting like, you know, 80% of her, of her uh, highest wage, like averaged over the last wow. uh, five yeah. years. Until she until she drops dead, like sign me up for some of that. Stuff. <laughs> exactly, no and there's nothing like I mean, a defined come on, people. a defined benefit pension plan. So I'll yeah, everybody's struggling. Exactly, I think they got to be back. Go head back to work for accountability and transparency. <laughs> and I'm not going to move off of that uh, that position for sure. All so, right, we'll be in next Friday. Okay, yeah, Sarah and I will be in next Friday. <laughs> Leah, Sarah, thank you so much. You're welcome. For listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.